Bokar Tov. Today we begin Parashat Mishpatim, and from here on in, the continuous storyline of the family of Abraham until the formation of Bnei Israel has now ceased, and now we get into the technicalities of the law. What we did in last week's parasha, at the end of last week's parasha, was the Ten Commandments. And if Bnei Israel got the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai by the Word of God, then the laws that we're going to see in this week's parasha are going to be something, uh, according to the Midrash, they actually also taught at Mount Sinai, yes. but it's not with the same revelatory experience. Those ten were the core, the fundamentals that... Uh, I, I, there are a lot of Pirushim that say those ten are the fundamentals from which everything else springs. Everything else, right? everything else builds off of those. And we'll see a lot of similarities, to be honest, in the Mishpatim relative to the, the Ten Commandments. So it's not the most far-off thing. It's as if those, the, ten commandments, the Ten Commandments set the tone and the, the details of the civil law are going to be further expounded as we go. The, just to understand the, the progression, uh, we'll, we're going to go back to the maftir of last week's parasha just to quickly re-explain what that maftir was doing and why it was so important for Bnei Israel to hear about that specific thing. So prior to the maftir, in, at the end of Yitro, Bnei Israel complained to, they complained to Moshe and they say, please speak to us and we will listen because if God keeps speaking to us, we're going to die. And Moshe says, no, it's good for you because God wanted to give you the gift of fear of God so he wanted you to experience the revelation so while I will continue to give the message from here on in you B'nai Israel, it was good for you to experience this revelation of Borei Olam because now you learn the fear of God Gift of the fear. in the meantime Moshe goes up to the Arafel he goes into the cloud that where God is apparently or maybe to receive more laws which you're going to hear in Mishpatim mm-hmm. now Pasuk 19 is where the Maftir I think it's where the maftir yes, yes, begins. Yes. So Hashem says to Moshe, So shall you say to Bnei Israel, You have seen that I've spoken to you from the heavens. Do not make from me a god of gold or god of a god of silver or god of gold. Do not make for you. If you're going to make for me an altar, make it out of earth. And all of your animals you want to sacrifice, you can do on that altar. Any place in which I pronounce my name, that's where I will bless you. Meaning anywhere where you do a korban. I will be, I, and that's where my name is resting. They're not allowed to do it anywhere they want. So this is actually an important thing to understand. Were Bnei Israel allowed to do korbanot anywhere they want? So there is a there are two ideas to know about this. When the Beit Hamikdash was established, no. When the Beit Hamikdash was established, they were only allowed to do it in the Beit Hamikdash. However, so long as Bnei Israel were not established with the Beit Hamikdash, bamot were actually allowed. So this is one of the discussions actually in the book of Yoshua, where the second Bnei Israel come in and, and, Yoshua, and while they are still conquering the land, before they have the land divided up, 
technically they are allowed to bring bamot according to halakha. They are allowed to bring korbanot wherever they want, wherever which they is want. called it's called the bama. It's called bamot. Once they divided up the land and they had the mishkan in Shiloh, which was like the precursor yes, 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 to the yes, bet hamikdash. Yes, yes, yes. Once they did that, that's it. You stopped. So here it's probably referring to a phase in Bnei Israel's life when they were allowed to bring bamot. And if you were to make for me one out of stone, not out of earth, you cannot make it hewn. Because you've lifted your sword upon it and you've made it uh, profane. And you should not go up by stairs onto my Mizbeach. So that your, uh, your private parts are not exposed on my Korban. So what, what is the overarching point of teaching Bnei Israel now about the strictures of the korban of the types of korban that they could bring so so obviously there's there's an element of gratitude but why specifically here after the experience of Har Sinai why after the experience of the Ten Commandments so what I heard is something like this that Bnei Israel they've just experienced God in a very real way and they complain to Moshe and they say, Moshe, this is too much of an experience for us. Right. So what, as humans, we tend to do is whenever we experience God, right, and we experience a very real revelation, what they're going to have the tendency to do then is to try to recreate that experience. Oh, they're going to, to want to recreate the experience of interacting with God. But they don't know how to do it. What's the way to do it? And here, Borei Olam is teaching them how to do it. If you want to recreate an experience in which you interact with God the way you interacted in Mount Sinai, then you could do the Korban. But with the Korban, there comes a lot of danger. Because other nations do Korbanot also. And a lot of times those nations involve sexual practices with their Korban. And a lot of times those nations, they... they, uh, There there is a lot of bloodshed involved in their Korbanot. And a lot of times their korbanot are end, end up becoming into forms of Abu Dazara. So you have to do it under very specific rules. You do it in a humble way. The, the, mizbeach, the mizbeach can't be a glorious, beautiful Mizbeach with all of these. It has to be a Mizbeach, mizbeach out of earth, right? And all of the, uh, the Kohanim who are going to serve have to be extremely modest. And everything has to be kosher. So that seems to be what's going on here. And that would be... On the whole, how Bnei Israel will be able to maintain some kind of relationship with Borei Olam even after their experience in Mount Sinai. But Rabbi, he's not telling which animal you can korban or any of that. No, yeah. it's not. It's not going into yeah. details of of the korban. That's for Sefer Vayikra. Yes. That's what the Kohanim are going to have to learn because they're the ones who are in charge of that. But, but for now, is, for Am Israel, and this is also because this is not. The has to do this. He's not even telling nothing. Any, anybody, that's true. That's anybody true. Anybody can do it. This is, at this point, it seems like this is something that people could just do, yeah. and it's not something that's tied to the to the Kohanim. Another thing that's interesting is we said the relationship between Har Sinai, the giving of of the Ten Commandments, and the Mishkan is going to be very prevalent, and this is the first hint of that. Where what is the main activity you do in the Mishkan? It's a korbanot. It's korbanot. <laughs> So the second we come off Har Sinai, what mitzvah do we learn? Korbanot. Which tells us that there is a relationship between yes. Har Sinai and the Mishkan. And that, again, when we look at the Mishkan, you have to see it in terms of a portable Har Sinai. That's what the Mishkan is going to be. Now that we got that introduction, let's go to Parashat Mishpatim. 
the methodology we're going to use for Mishpatim and why I think it's going to be interesting is one of the main complaints or the, the frivolous attempts of the frivolous criticisms of the Torah is that it's, it's too old, it's out of date, it's out of touch, the morality is old fashioned. That's a, it's a classic, uh, yeah. you know, we've already seen that to yes, be a, yes. a frivolous claim because yeah, whenever we're studying whenever, it, whenever nobody wants to do these kind of uh, mitzvot, then that's, you know, they don't want to... Yeah, that's a this. typical complaint. <laughs> our, our, but we, what we've seen, at least what I've gained out of these classes and this deeper, under, deeper dive into the Torah, is that we're constantly reading things that the Torah is telling us that are more advanced than we can ever imagine. Sure. That are much more advanced than we are ourselves. These things are today. I mean, if you look at it from... You know, how many times have we done something in class and somebody, eh, this is just like today. Exactly. It happens, it happens, what, happens like twice, three times a week. We're going to see this. Right. So, so, um, it's very important to understand with all of these laws, to understand the context and what the goyim were doing at the same time. It's hard to know... It's hard to know, but we can try our best to understand, or at least try to imagine how the goyim were behaving at the same time. And because then we laws, understand why these laws were given to us. Then we understand what these laws are doing, where they're telling Bnei Israel, "See, you went to Egypt, where this is how things were done, and now now it's going to be done like this." Now, if even now here's the chidush, right? So, for a typical more progressive criticism of the Torah is oh you guys have slavery in the Torah first of all we don't, we don't have slavery yeah, I'll explain to you we don't, there's no such thing as slavery in the Torah but but how do we approach these parts about slavery well obviously it's not relevant to us because no, no, none of us are going to go and buy slaves but whenever we see that a generation like Am Israel that was in Egypt that was was, was, in, was well aware of the concept of slavery is being told, let's say, to treat your slaves well, right? So the Torah is not going to go and say, stop this whole concept of, of, uh, of slavery, okay? What it does is it says to Ben Israel, okay, look, you were in Egypt, you know what the Goyim do, I know all of your societies have these slaves. If you want to continue that practice, this is how you have to do it. This is how you have to do it. Now, what do we see from that? From the fact that the Torah is teaching us how to treat the servant we learn let's say for modern times the dignity of the human man the dignity of even the lowest man in society so for example the first law in book of mishpatim in this specific set of laws is going to be about the slave and what does that tell you about the torah it tells you that the first order the most important thing that torah wants to start with in the body of law is the is the person is the person who is lowest in society. The person who is lowest in society is the person that the Torah cares about the most. So, this is why it's going to be extremely important to understand how Bnei Israel must have seen these laws. And once we understand that, we understand what is the deeper value that the law is trying to teach us, even for the laws that are less applicable, less applicable to us today, because we don't have... uh, There is a Gemara that talks about one such law, which was the Ben Soreru Mureh, when the times of the Gemara, the Gemara said, we don't, we, don't, we don't have this Ben Sorer no More. So what are we supposed to learn from it? And what does the Gemara say? It's in the Torah because there are certain values that are being taught in that law. Despite the fact that it's less applicable to you practically, there are values in that law which are important for you to know as Am Israel, and, and you're supposed to glean them 
from careful, from careful that. Not that, that, that right exactly happen. okay these are the laws that you will put before them by the way notice that the, there's a letter vav at the beginning yes. which means that this ties all of these laws to the previous yes. It's as if this is an outgrowth yes, of, the, yes, of the Ten Commandments. Yes. When you purchase a Hebrew servant, you shall work, he shall work for six years. And the seventh year, he shall go free. Now, important to understand that the Torah does not have a word for slave. The Torah has a word for servant. We were... Servants to we never called Pharaoh. Anybody a servant. We were yes, Avadim le Pharaoh, Avadim and then we were Kitigne Eved Ivri. You have Eved, and then how do I know that it doesn't mean slave in a derogatory sense? Because in the beginning of the book of Yoshua, Moshe is described as Eved Adonai. So what? Moshe was a slave in a bad sense. Servant. It's a servant. The word Eved exclusively means servant, and in the Torah we don't have such a thing as a slave. You have a servant. Uh, and, and it makes perfect sense because even the, 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 the concept of slavery in the Torah, the servant that we are, we are seeing in the Torah, he's pretty much just a salaried employee. The, his salary doesn't come in the form of money. It comes in the form of shelter and, and, food. and food and all the things that the, the owner of the household must make sure the person is comfortable while he's doing his work and fulfilling his, his time. Okay? In If he comes in alone... He shall leave alone. But if he came in a married man, then his wife will also leave with him. So for example, what, is, what was probably typical practice of the goyim for a slave? You can imagine, typical practice was the guy comes in with a wife. The master may steal a wife and, boy, boy, and then... Boy. I don't even want to think. Yeah, of course. You think of a savage society. What do you think a man became a slave... These are the things that happened. The, the, the owner would probably take the wife or the owner would just send the guy off on his way and say, hey, what about my wife? I own your wife. And okay. the children. It's only their wife. Right, right. and the children. children. Oh my God. Now, oh my God. now, if the master will give him a wife, who is, who is he going to give him a wife from? Typically, a, a, a non-Jewish maidservant. Why, why non-Jewish? If, they, if, if it's a, a Jewish servant? I don't think they would give... Um, I have to look into it more, to be honest. I don't know because so much. Because here it's only about the non-Jewish. Right, you have that there also, right? Yeah, it says, yeah. it says then, the same comment. after it says that if it's a non-Jewish, the, 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 the master can keep her. Right, because he's providing, if he's providing him. a, a non-Jewish woman to him as a wife, which is technically allowed in this case, then because the master is the one who provided the wife, it, it becomes his property. It becomes his property. It, it stays his property. It doesn't, it doesn't, become the slave's property yes. unless and he unless the slave says I love this woman and I, I want to stay, stay. Yeah. or if we convert the woman and make her Jewish and then but she can why is it pushing that you should give him if you give him a non-Jewish why not a Jewish I, mean, I, I don't know if they can give a Jewish one. that's a good oh, question it, because because he's a servant is that the reason let's see this is what I'm trying to it's very mind-boggling to Practically, you're saying if today you, are, you, you get a Jewish servant, you can give him a non-Jewish wife. You're I mean, I don't know if, how much yeah. of this we do today, but <laughs> in, like in theory, in theory, they would give. I, I think they would typically give like a 
a maybe a captive woman or some right. non-Jewish woman who is another car yeah another there. another car like a, another another woman that works woman in that, who in, that works in right. that, in that uh, right so if it's the master so what essentially this pasuk is saying is if the master takes of his own servants his own maid servants and he gives the guy a wife then he doesn't automatically lose the woman because he gave her as yeah, a wife yeah, yeah, yeah. he gets now to keep his now it makes sense right? yes. um, and then he can make a Jewish eventually and if, if the guy really likes her then he'll either stay a slave or he'll ask the master to make her Jewish so that she can become fully part of Am Yisrael more or less like when you get a, a, a woman in a war you get a woman that you are in love then you have to shave her and then prepare her and it's an interesting comparison it's a, a little bit like that it's an interesting comparison <laughs> that this would be compared let's say to the that's, non, that's, not, that's also not a non-Jewish it's woman. also a non-Jewish woman there's steps involved in making her you can't just walk away with her you, know, you can't just make her your wife on day one so same thing with the servant if he ends up with a non-Jewish maidservant again the master gets to keep her and he leaves, leaves alone but if the servant says I love my master, my wife, and my sons. I do not want to go leave because then I'll be leaving alone. The master brings him to the judges, to the court. And they bring him to the door or to the doorpost. Then he hits his ear with a peg. And he will serve him forever. And le'olam means until the yovel. Nobody goes past the yovel. All servants are freed in the yovel. More or less, this is going to happen. I mean, if this was the law, if they would marry him with a... Because he's going to have children with that, he's not going to leave his wife and children. It's very rarely that would happen. It's a good point, but on the, on the flip side... So here, here is the value the Torah wants to, to promote here. The Torah doesn't like this idea of everybody remaining slaves for a very long time. A, because Am Yisrael are supposed to be free people. It's not supposed to be a slave nation. B, because... And, and because slavery to other human beings makes it hard to recognize that your only real master is, is God. And B, the other problem that we have, if we have too many slaves, we may create a society in which there is a master class and a sta- slave class. Kind of like, you know, in India. In India, there's a... I mean, you see it everywhere. In America, you have a middle class. But in, in very... And more third world countries you don't have a middle class you have Asia, slave Asia, Asia, and Middle rich East. even Middle East is like this yeah every, everywhere everywhere that's third world the middle class is an invention of, of the more modern western societies the third world societies don't have a middle class they have a, a rich class and they have a poor class so that's not what the Torah wants they encourage the Torah wants everybody to be standing on their own two feet so if the slave wants to stay forever it's not a good thing the Torah doesn't like that and we understand where it's coming from because he wants to stay with his wife. And his wife technically is the property of his master. So you can't just take the woman because the master did him a favor and gave him a wife. He's, the master is all of a sudden going to lose five of his... those children that he has with his wife... Also they also belong to the master, very, right? It's a very difficult... Uh, it's a difficult situation because you have to, it's the master's maidservant, and the, but, the, but the slave married her and he wants to leave now. So, so what the Torah does is you could stay... But you have to make a public marking. Now, why would they do this? They did this probably because it would bring shame, bring shame upon the person. He has to become free. Because the to. Torah wants him to become yes. free. Now, the if way, you want to remain a slave, you're going to have a public mark on your ear and everybody's going to know you chose to stay, to to stay, stay a slave. Yeah. Now, one last thing is that before we close, um, another thing finally is that in the other cultures... 
they wouldn't they would do whatever they wanted to their slaves so they would they would often brand their slaves they would if they wanted to let's say mark their slave as a slave they would brand like the them they would brand them with iron right like with, like, with hot iron yes that's what they did even in the 19th century in america so what the torah does here notice that in order to make any mark and touch the slave who has do who do you have to go to to the judges meaning you're only allowed to touch your slave in a potentially painful way if you have permission from the, you have permission from the court and, and the court even, is watching and, you and do when it. you go further you see that if, if a tooth of your servant is exactly there, exactly there, there's a, the, the there's easiest way the easiest them. way to lose a slave is just, by hurting them yes. or by having them lose a limb or something like that so we're seeing, if you read closely the text, you will find a lot of protections for yes, the lower for the, class. Yes, yes. Over and over. All of these things are protections for the lower class. All right? He's allowed to leave alone. You can't take his wife. He's, uh, he's, he must be brought to the court. You can't hurt him for no reason. See, we don't read it like this because we're not used to it. We're not, we're not aware of how bad the society was. It was in that era, my right? God. But just the fact that the slave was not allowed to be touched without the permission of a court that's a huge revolution in the life of a slave. That's a, that's a very, very big benefit to the slave in those times. Okay, so we're going to continue reading in this light all of the laws, as much of the laws as we can, as we can study, uh, so that we can really, really appreciate the, the greatness of all of them. Baruch Amen. Amen. Amen.